Okay, so let's start. Uh, I'm uh, Anne Phillips, not David Held. Uh, I'm uh, chairing uh, this uh, uh, public lecture in the Ralph Miliband series on sustainability, social justice, and global order. Uh, apologies for the late start. As you know, we had to clear the hall of one group of you in order to get the next group in. Um, uh, the, uh, the lecture tonight will be recorded, and we hope that there'll be a podcast on the uh, LSE website within, uh, within a few days. Um, it's very hard, I think, to think of um, any one name that would come more readily to mind in a, a lecture series on linking these themes of sustainability, social justice, and global order. It's hard to think of any name that would come more readily, readily to mind than Peter Singer's. Uh, who's, uh, who's written on uh, bioethics, uh, animal liberation, food policies, um, the responsibility we carry as individuals rather than just as citizens for dealing with problems of global poverty. Um, and someone, I think, whose writings have, have actually galvanized people to make changes, um, which is something as academics we always hope we'll do, but rarely manage. Uh, Peter Singer is uh, currently a professor of bioethics at the uh, Center for Human Values at Princeton uh, and was the uh, founding president of the International Association of Bioethics. Uh, his, uh, his most recent book, um, The Life You Can Save, Acting Now to End World Poverty, incidentally, will be on sale outside the lecture theater at the end of the lecture, and he's willing to sign copies as well. Um, I think I must have read at least uh, three reviews of this book in the last couple of weeks, and I've noticed that... Um, Nearly all the reviewers kind of uh, are at pains to say that they can't possibly agree with the arguments in the book and the kind of suggestion that we should actually be required to, um, uh, you know, it can't possibly be true that people in Afri affluent countries uh, actually have to solve the problems of global poverty uh, through their own actions. And yet I notice that nearly every reviewer has ended by saying he's going to increase what he gives to charity. Uh, so that's kind of quite effective. <laughs> Anyway, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Peter Singer, whose theme today is Changing Values for a Just and Sustainable World. Thank you very much, uh, Anne, for that most generous introduction. Uh, well, yes, I, I think you're right about the reviews, and I'm happy if people are actually led to change what they do. As you say, that's, that's one of the things that I want to do in this book. It's not really an academic book as such. It is a book that I hope will reach a wider audience and will change not only individual actions but to some extent change the culture of uh, what we're doing. Now today I'm going to talk um, primarily about uh, the theme of that book, uh, if you like to focus there on uh, a just world. In, but in, in uh, accordance with the themes of the Miliband lecture series, I will talk a little bit about uh, making the world sustainable and in particular about the, what that implies for, uh, for the issue of climate change, which I think is the, the, perhaps the, the other crucial issue that faces us in terms of something that needs action about one of the world's great problems. And it is an issue, I think, that's also one of justice. So let me move on since there's quite a lot to get through and maybe I'll Make sure that I don't go on too long by getting a watch where I can see it. Okay, so 
Let's start with um, the question of world poverty and let's define it in the way that the World Bank does. Uh, the concept is it's not having enough income to meet your basic needs. Um, current definition of that uh, by the World Bank, uh, it's no longer the dollar a day that some of you will be familiar with, it's a dollar twenty-five. Um, though that's in 1993 dollars, which actually makes it somewhat more than that, still under two US dollars. And the important thing is it's the purchasing power equivalent of that. So if you spend time in developing countries and you think, oh, two dollars a day, I could manage on that, you can get a decent meal for 30 cents, and uh, you can sleep on the beach and so on, um, well, you're not actually going to get two dollars in the local currency. You're not going to get what you would get if you took two US dollars to the bank and... Uh, and said, give me the local currency for this. You're going to get whatever it is in the local currency which buys the same goods and services as you buy for uh, about $2 or $1.75, so they're in um, US dollars per day. So it is a very small amount to be living on altogether. Um, and there's about 1.4 billion living below this line at the moment. These are the consequences. They're probably fairly obvious. Uh, if you are living on so little, you're likely to be undernourished, not likely to have safe drinking water, uh, can't send your children to school, can't afford even the most basic health services. Your children are likely to die from diseases that don't exist in this country, or if they do exist, are not fatal, easily cured. And your life expectancy may be uh, below 50 rather than 77 in the rich nations. And uh, here's one result of it. Um, actually, the you, sorry, this, this is a UNICEF figure. Oh, maybe I didn't delete this slide. I thought I'd rewritten it. Um, let's just see if we've got another one. Yeah, we've got another one. Okay, this is the more updated one. Um, UNICEF, uh, which is a good sign, I guess, because UNICEF used to say that there were 10 million children living, uh, sorry, 10 million children a year dying from avoidable poverty-related causes. They said uh, in 2007 that it was down to 9.2 million. So we are making some progress. And in fact, it's, it's important to say because some people just say, oh, poverty, it's like a black hole. It, we never make any impression on it. That this figure has been dropping consistently over decades. So it was as much as 20 million um, uh, about 30 years ago. Uh, and is now down below 10. But that's still, of course, a very large figure. And if you break that up onto a daily basis, think of it that way maybe, uh, it's around 25,000 children dying every day from avoidable uh, causes. Now, the other side of the world, of course, uh, uh, is that we have roughly similar number, maybe a billion people, living uh, at a high level of affluence, most of them in uh, rich nations, but some of them in nations that are not affluent nations as a whole, like China, India, Brazil, um, adding up to around a billion. Um, and this is a level of affluence that uh, only the wealthiest and most aristocratic could afford to live at uh, a century or so ago. In fact, in some senses, of course, uh, it's never been possible. It's never previously been possible for large numbers of people to uh, travel in winter to warm climates and enjoy a holiday there, or to have uh, fresh fruit and vegetables uh, all year round uh, uh, to be able to control the temperature of your environment at the touch of a button. So in many ways we're living at a level of affluence that uh, really hasn't even existed before. 
Okay, so about uh, 30 years ago, I wrote an article called Famine, Affluence and Morality, which uh, was started off with a little story about seeing a toddler falling into a pond, uh, apparently about to drown. Uh, I thought you could find everything on the web, but it seems you can't find a photograph of a toddler about to drown in a pond. <laughs> um, whoops, sorry, let's, let's just go back. Uh, how do we go back now? Hello. All right, never mind. You'll forget the toddler. We'll stay with this one. Okay, the other part of this, I was going to... Uh, uh, it's revealed part of the story now, but um, the other part of this is that uh, although you can save the toddler in the pond um, if you rush in and save him, you're wearing a very expensive pair of shoes and they're going to get ruined if you do rush into the pond to save the child. I did find a, a photo of a very expensive pair of shoes on the web. Um, they're actually made here in England uh, by... an uh, shoemaker called Edward Green and this particular pair uh, was an American website that you can buy them on, sells for over a thousand dollars which suits my argument quite well, uh, although you might think well that's not me going to be wearing those shoes but the point of uh, the little story of the, the child drowning in the pond is that most people say, if you say well Okay, so you could save the child in the pond, but you're wearing your favourite and most expensive pair of shoes. Um, what would you think of someone who, uh, because of that, decides not to save the child in the pond, decides to just walk on past saying, well, after all, I didn't put the child in the pond. It's not my responsibility. Um, when I've discussed that with my students, and I assume that you will be no different, uh, they all say, uh, that's terrible, that, that's outrageous. Uh, you can't think of a pair of shoes as equivalent to a child's life. If you do, you're, some, you're, you're morally defective in some way. You're some kind of, of moral monster who could compare the value of a pair of shoes with a child's life. And I'm glad that uh, people do think that way. I think that that's the right way to think. But, of course, it opens up the issue that... Uh, I presented to you at the start, and that is, well, all of those affluent people in the world, which includes us, um, have the ability to save some of those 25,000 children who are dying every day from poverty-related causes. Uh, we have the ability to do that by uh, giving to an aid organisation which is effectively reducing that death toll, either directly reducing it by, for instance, uh, providing villages with safe water so their children don't get diarrhoea, or providing health clinics where uh, you can take your child if your child does have diarrhoea and you can get a very simple treatment, which means that they won't die from diarrhoea, or uh, providing uh, bed nets against malaria, um, uh, a range of different things. Uh, or perhaps indirectly working uh, against this death toll by helping people to get themselves out of poverty. Uh, in various ways, uh, giving them small loans so that they can start businesses, giving them better seeds so that they can grow more food uh, or other crops that they can then sell in order to obtain some income, uh, providing some infrastructure so that they can sell what they're already making at markets where they can get better prices for them, uh, a range of different activities uh, which can effectively reduce poverty and reduce that death toll. Now, obviously, there's questions about that that I'm going to come to in a moment. But if we assume 
for the moment that that's true, then the question is, if we don't do something towards that end, aren't we in the same position as the person who says, uh, well, um, I don't want to spoil my shoes um, and so I'm going to walk past the child? Uh, because certainly for the cost of a pair of shoes like this, and even, I think, arguably for the cost of somewhat less expensive shoes, uh, you could uh, give to organisations which uh, are likely to be able to save a child's life for, for that kind of, of sum. In the book I go into some details about those figures. Um, I draw on work done by uh, a couple of guys that you can find on a website at, called uh, givewell.net um, who've been evaluating some aid agencies. And there are a variety of figures floating around. Um, but I think uh, figures around a uh, thousand US dollars uh, are the sort of order that you could say um, various measures are likely to save a life. Um, sometimes you see much, much lower figures, but you should be wary of very low figures because I think they don't take the full cost into account. For instance, I told you that you can, if you can get a child to a health clinic, you can save that child's life with a very simple treatment. It's called oral rehydration oral rehydration therapy um, it costs about, um, about 30 cents um, but that doesn't mean that for a donation of 30 cents you can save a child's life because you have to have the health clinics where the children have diarrhoea or you have to make it possible for people to get there or you have to send health workers out to the villages to distribute these kits in case they'll be needed um, not every kit obviously saves a child's life. Similarly with um, anti-malaria bed nets there's some information saying you know for $10 you can buy a bed net and save a child's life. Well, for $10 you can buy a bed net, but not every bed net saves a child's life, obviously, because otherwise before there were bed nets there wouldn't be any children and therefore there wouldn't be any people in the areas that are malaria, malaria prone. So you have to distribute a significant number of bed nets before you can expect that one of them will save a child's life. Uh, and uh, the guys at givewell.net have tried to do that calculation um, and uh, uh, for them, I think it comes out around $800. Uh, actually, incidentally, Jeffrey Sachs, whose spirit, no doubt, is still hanging around this room, um, did the same calculation and it came out rather less in his view, I think more like $400. But, so you can debate this, but um, we're talking of something that's not too far out of line with the cost of an expensive pair of shoes. Okay, that's moving on. Right. So... Um, I don't just want to rely on the parallel with the child in the pond. Um, that's uh, like pulling at a certain uh, intuitive response and in general in terms of ethical methodology those who know my work will know I'm, I'm somewhat suspicious of intuitive ethical responses. Um, so I think we can construct an argument whose premises we uh, can look at um, and maybe reflect on and I think uh, find acceptable. This is the first premise. Um, and this does clearly relate to the example of the child in the pond. Um, the loss of a child's life, other things being equal, is something bad. Uh, the sacrifice of a pair of shoes is not something nearly as important. Um, and if we are in that situation, sometimes called the situation of easy rescue, um, then we should carry out the easy rescue, the rescue at relatively small cost. Uh, now, this applies then to the saving the child's life or to helping 
people out of extreme poverty, giving, given the consequences of extreme poverty that I mentioned to you. Uh, this is the factual premise I need, uh, which, as I said, I'll say a little bit more about, um, but I do go into more details in the book. And so the conclusion is we ought to prevent it. And uh, if, the, if the premises are true, the argument um, is valid. The question is whether those premises are true. I think the first and second, um, most people will accept. Libertarians may reject the first. Um, I think there's reasons why we shouldn't accept uh, that kind of perspective. We shouldn't accept the perspective that, well, I've earned my money uh, and therefore uh, what I do with it is my business. That's essentially the view that they're taking. Um, for one thing, I think it, it, it doesn't take account of how much we benefit through the good fortune of having grown up in a society in which it's possible to earn your money and live reasonably well uh, through uh, a reasonable amount of effort. And if we were unlucky enough to be born in very different circumstances, no matter how hard we tried, we would probably not have been able to achieve uh, the kind of level of, of comfort that we have. Uh, another issue here which relates to what I'm going to be talking about later is in fact the, the question of climate change because the libertarian argument assumes that I've earned my money and I'm living without violating anyone else's rights. Um, that's the libertarian claim. As long as I don't violate anyone else's rights, uh, I don't have obligations to others. But as we'll see when we get to climate change, I think it's almost impossible to live in uh, uh, a developed country without doing things to others that could well be described as violating their rights. So I'll come back to, uh, to that point. So let me look at this point, um, the question of whether aid works, the factual question. Um, there are certainly many critics of aid. Uh, in the book I talked about William Easterly, uh, there's a more recent book out by Dambisa Moyo, a uh, Zambian economist who um, called Dead Aid, uh, that also argues that aid is not working. But in fact, the, the, the common element of both of these books, really, and of many others in this area, is they're really talking about uh, government aid programs, maybe other multilateral World Bank, IMF aid programs. Um, they're not talking about NGO aid. And that, in fact, both William Eastley, well, William Eastley really barely mentions NGOs, and Dambisa Moyo explicitly says that that's not what she's talking about. Uh, so I think a lot of those arguments don't apply to what I'm suggesting, because I'm not suggesting anyone give their donation to the World Bank. Um, so uh, I think we need to look at the efficacy of the aid organisations that you might be giving to. Secondly, people like William Eastley talk about um, trillions of dollars that we've put into aid um, as if we have been putting vast amounts of money into aid without seeing any result for it. Now I've already said that um, we have been making progress in reducing poverty and in reducing the, the death toll. Uh, whether it's from aid or whether it's from uh, globalisation of the economy and trade for instance is a question that we could certainly discuss. I think trade has been a major factor in reducing poverty in countries like China and India. But I think in terms of reducing the child death toll, um, certainly some aid programs have been effective. But the other thing is that um, the idea of it being a vast sum of money I think is quite misleading. Uh, because although Easterly talks about trillions of dollars, he then says over the last 50 years, 
So um, it's a long time period. Plus, um, he says, uh, he's talking about from the entire developed world, which is a lot of people. Um, so when you look at it in terms of a proportion of how much we've earned, it doesn't come out to be very much. It's about a quarter of uh, 1% of gross domestic product. In other words, it's 25 pence we're giving for every 100 pounds that we earn, which um, I don't think is a lot of money to be giving to one of the great moral problems, one of the great uh, international justice issues uh, that, that we face. So I wouldn't say that we've necessarily put a lot of money into this, and, and even if you look at it in terms of the number of people needing to be helped, um, it's not very much money being put into it. So I don't think it shows what we would be able to do if we made a considerably more significant effort. Here's another way of looking at how much uh, we do um, and uh, individual countries, uh, what they do. Um, so uh, the, um, the average country effort is, is shown here is actually 0.45. This is just for 2007. Um, but the average country effort doesn't reflect, in fact, the percentage of the world's economy, which is this figure on the right, the darker column, that you can't quite see. It's 0.28, I think, is the figure. Um, that's because the largest economies also give the least. So you've got uh, uh, the United States right down the bottom there, alongside Greece. Um, and you've got Japan, the next biggest economy, just on the other side of Greece. So uh, we've got the, the, a, a distorting effect. The, the average country effort um, is more flattering to the world as a whole than uh, the total development uh, assistance committee, which is development aid committee, which is the, the last column. Um, Britain doesn't look too good. The United Kingdom on this, it's um, 0.36. Actually, it did, it did leap up on recently released figures for 2008. It went up to 0.43. So it's getting pretty close to the average country effort, although still not there, and still... Um, uh, only about half of those countries that are really doing reasonably well, which is, of course, the usual suspects, the Scandinavian nations and the Netherlands uh, and Luxembourg uh, uh, as well here are the countries which are doing reasonably well, although still not you know, giving enormous amounts, if you think of it. Uh, even uh, the highest of them is still less than $1 in every 100 that we earn. Okay, let's look at uh, this in terms of the Millennium Development Goals, which we promised to meet um, in uh, 2000. The leader of this nation and pretty much every other nation promised that by 2015 we would have reduced by half the population of the world's people in extreme poverty, the po proportion of the world's people who suffer from hunger, uh, the proportion of the world's people cut to the bottom without sustainable access to safe drinking water, uh, ending sex disparity in education and so on, ensuring that children everywhere can take a full course of primary schooling. Uh, some uh, reasonably ambitious goals and uh, I'm referring to them because we have, uh, again from Jeffrey Sachs, an estimate of what it would cost to meet them. Um, so this is what he said uh, a few years ago in 2003 dollars. It would take, he's headed a task force at the United Nations, to meet these, these goals. And um, although we've uh, fallen a bit behind, even if we take the top figure, uh, he thought would, 
we would scale up gradually. Even if we take the top figure of $189 billion a year uh, to meet the Millennium Development Goals, um, it's something that really is quite feasible from the world as a whole. We've got quite used to these large hundreds of billion dollar figures, of course, in the last, um, in the last few months. They're all getting thrown around in terms of financial uh, stimulus uh, packages. So we now have a sense of uh, what that might mean and what can be done. It's uh, vastly less, of course, than the United States has been uh, using to bail out the banks and uh, General Motors and uh, whoever else is likely to be bailed out. Um, but also in terms of whether this is an achievable goal that we could give through aid, I think this uh, indicates that uh, it is something that is achievable, even achievable by individuals. Um, I'll, come, I'll have a look at that uh, in a second. So um, a lot of people have said to the argument that I put many years ago, the one based on the drowning child in the pond, that it demands a very, a very high level of giving. Um, because the problem with it is that uh, although you can save the child in the pond at the cost of just one pair of shoes, and then, well, you've saved that child, so you've solved the problem. You can restore the child to uh, his or her parents, um, uh, toss your shoes in the bin perhaps, but get another pair, go on with your life as normal. Um, it is, of course, true that with world poverty, unless other people are giving substantially, and at the moment they're not, then having saved one child with your $1,000 or £500 donation or whatever it might be, um, there's still many more children to be saved. So it seems that if having given £500, you're still in a reasonably comfortable position, you can still afford a, a, a few small luxuries, uh, you shouldn't be buying them either because another £500 will save another child and so on and so forth. And it seems that there's no stopping point until you come to a point where you're sacrificing something of comparable moral significance. You remember if you go back to that um, uh, argument that I put out there, uh, the argument was that if you can prevent something bad happening without sac sacrificing something uh, comparably significant, uh, you ought to do it. So it seems that you have to keep impoverishing yourself till you get to the point where a further donation would lead to the sacrifice of something very seriously significant. And that many people have said, well, that's an unreasonable morality, that's too demanding a morality, that's a morality for saints rather than for human beings, and so there must be something wrong with the argument. Well, some thinkers in the past actually have... have apparently not thought that. Um, it's interesting to look back on other thinkers and find that what I'm saying didn't really seem crazily radical to a thinker who we often think of as, as a rather conservative thinker, Thomas Aquinas, because he had, his thought has been a pillar of the Roman Catholic Church and we tend not to think of the Roman Catholic Church as a very radical organisation. But um, certainly if you look at uh, Aquinas's views, um, he's saying that we owe of natural right what we have in superabundance. And by superabundance, it means more than we need to provide for our own needs and to make reasonable provision for future needs uh, and perhaps to provide for the needs of our, of our dependents. Um, and Aquinas goes on to say, in fact, because he has a, a 
natural law view of property rights, that property exists in order to provide for our needs, and so if somebody can't provide for their needs, they have a right to take from those who have in superabundance. You, they're, they're, not, they're not even a thief if they do that. It's not just that you ought to give it to them, but you don't really have a right to retain it against them. Well, in case you think that's not uh, uh, the British tradition, that's a, a different sort of tradition, um, here's John Locke, who surely is quite central to the British political tradition, um, who says pretty much the same thing. Charity gives every man a title to so much out of another's plenty as will keep him from extreme want where he has no means to subsist otherwise. That's not uh, a, a quote that's very often associated with Locke um, because it's from the first treatise uh, on government, not the second treatise, which is the one that political theorists always read. First treatise is full of all this boring stuff about uh, divine right and so on. Um, but this is, seems to be Locke's view in it. So in that sense, maybe we have to ask, well, is this, would this be such a crazy demanding view anyway? But in the recent book, I have taken a somewhat different line. Some people see this line as a sign that I'm becoming soft in my old age. But um, uh, I see it as something slightly different. Uh, I see it as um, distinguishing the question of what we might decide that we should do, where we might indeed follow the argument that I've given you, um, if we kind of person who thinks about those arguments and reflects on them, and I, perhaps this audience is, but um, it's a separate question as to what we ought to advocate, what we ought to try and get out into the community as a public standard that people will think about and act on. And at least from the ethical view that I hold, which is one that judges what we do by its consequences, Advocating a standard is itself an act and must therefore be judged by its consequences. So to advocate a standard which is such, no matter how good the arguments for it might be, which is such that most people are going to just throw up their hands and say, oh, that's ridiculous. If, if that's really what morality requires, forget about morality. I'm just going to get on with living my life because you know nobody does that. I'm not going to start doing that. Um, it's, it's crazy. Um, if that's the reaction people are going to get, then you're not going to get very good consequences by putting that standard out there. So what you ought to do on this view is to try to find a standard that will achieve the best consequences. And in this particular context, that means the standard that will raise the largest uh, amount for fighting world poverty. So that is going to mean uh, I think, a much lower standard, although one which increases as your income goes up, because obviously the rich can afford to give more, much, much like a, a progressive tax scale. And that's what I think we ought to be advocating. And this is the kind of thing that I've suggested in the book, and you can find details on this website I've set up, thelifeyoucansave.com, um, which in fact gives you the possibility of pledging to meet the standard for your level of income, whatever that is. And there's a reason why I do that, and that's because there's a lot of psychological research that shows that uh, people are more likely to give if they see that others are giving. So if we get lots and lots of people on the website, and we're over 2,000 now, um, who pledge to meet this standard, maybe it'll be easier for other people to say, oh yes, I want to be part of that too. 
That's the hope, anyway. So this is roughly the, uh, the sort of standard. And the interesting thing about it is that it yields this vast sum of money at the bottom. Look at that figure, $1.5 trillion a year if everybody in the affluent nations um, were to give in accordance with the standard. And for most people, that's only 1%. For 90% of people, that's only 1% of their income. Quite a modest standard. And yet, you know, compare that 1.5 trillion with the 189 billion that Sachs believes you can meet uh, the Millennium Development Goals for. It seems to suggest, if Sachs is, is anywhere at all in the right ballpark, um, even if his figure is, you know, an underestimate by a, a factor of two or three times, it seems that we could not only meet the Millennium Development Goals, but we could go further with a level of giving that is not going to be absurd or unrealistic or involve enormous sacrifice for uh, anyone. So um, that's why I think that uh, we really do have the possibility of dramatically reducing uh, world poverty and why I think that that's what we ought to do. We ought to promote some public standard like this in the hope that we can change the public culture so that people will regard this as part of what it is to live an ethical life. We tend usually, when we say, well, is somebody living ethically? Are they doing the right thing? We tend to do it in terms of those uh, thou shalt not rules. So there's various things that we say, well, you know, yes, they're, they're a good person if they don't cheat, steal, lie, um, uh, beat their partner or um, uh, you know, inflict violence on others, uh, whatever it might else be. But, it, but they tend all to be negative things. I'm arguing for a positive obligation to be part of the general package of what we think a good person uh, should do. Okay, let me say a little bit so we don't run out of time um, about uh, climate change and justice too because that seems to me, the, as I said, the other great issue about, um, about justice in, in the world today. So um, I see climate change as uh, an issue of justice, as a simple moral question in a way that's parallel to one of these very familiar ethical problems that we have. Uh, suppose you have an apple pie and you have uh, here 20 people who each want a slice of it. How do you divide up the pie fairly? Uh, or look at it this way, um, what would clearly be an unfair way of dividing up the pie? And this is an example of what would be an unfair way if there were 20 people who at least, you, know, you have to assume, has, have an equal claim to the pie. Of course, that may not be the case, but uh, we would need some argument at least as to why somebody has a claim to this much of it, uh, leaving the other 19 with smaller slices. So, I th think we need to think of the atmosphere as a pie in that way. It's a common resource. Nobody owns it. No nation owns the atmosphere. And it wouldn't make sense, for instance, to think that we own the atmosphere, that Britain owns the atmosphere above Britain um, because it's clearly circulating. It's not, not going to stay above Britain. Um, it's also a scarce resource. We haven't, until we discovered climate change, we haven't thought of it as a scarce resource because we've thought of it as just something that we use to breathe oxygen and so on. But it is a scarce resource we now know because it absorbs our greenhouse gases. And it has a limited capacity to absorb these... Uh, uh, sorry, that should be waste gases, obviously, rather than waste, waste cases. Um, it's not what lawyers dispose of here. Uh, so, um, 
uh, has a limited capacity to do that without producing consequences none of us want. So we need a principle of justice to decide how to allocate its capacity to absorb those waste gases. Now, there's various principles that you could propose for this. Um, I'm not going to go through them all, um, uh, but clearly the question that is raised is, um, so what about nations that, that are taking more than, seems to be more than their fair share? So this is, uh, here's an example that, that at least puts that question into play. You could say something similar for the United Kingdom. It wouldn't be quite as dramatic a contrast because United Kingdom uh, emissions in proportion to their population are less than the US's, um, but uh, uh, it still would be, still be imbalanced. So in the case of the US, you have uh, about 5% of the world's population and about 25% uh, of the atmosphere's limited capacity to absorb greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so that seems to raise that, uh, that question of justice. Now, um, some people may, may say, well, you know, this is a situation that has developed historically and we haven't really known about the problems of climate change during the period in which a lot of this damage was done. But in fact, at least uh, since 1992, we have acknowledged the problem. And uh, again, just as with the Millennium Development Summit, almost all the nations in the world signed on to a statement at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro um, that they agreed to stabilise greenhouse gases at, quote, a low enough level to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. So at least since then, we've known what the problem is, we've known what we've had to do about it, and indeed, we've promised that we would do that about it. But unfortunately, this is a promise that has not been kept. Um, we have continued to not only uh, maintain but increase uh, levels of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, certainly most, most developed countries have. The United States certainly has. Um, and most experts think now that it's going to be extremely difficult to hold, maybe already too, too late, to hold climate change at a 2 degrees Celsius increase above pre-industrial surface temperatures. That was set as the goal, uh, seen as the goal by many people, for what you would need to avoid that dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate that we pledged to do at Rio. But it's quite likely that we've already passed that margin and that we're now committed to something over 2 degrees Celsius. Um, uh, and uh, where exactly the dangerous anthropogenic interference is, we're, we're not so sure, but it's very likely to be in that range and of course the closer we get to the higher end of that range the more dangerous it is, the more likely that something very serious is going to happen. And although we've already seen some warming and we've already seen some significant climate change uh, actually we've probably only seen about 25% of the warming that um, we are already committed to from the gases that are already up there. And that I think makes you realise just how serious the situation is. Um, I uh, spend uh, part of each year in Australia, which is uh, my native country, and I think perhaps you get a better sense of it there than you do anywhere else that I've spent time, including here, because um, uh, southern and southeastern Australia has clearly had a significant change in rainfall patterns. We used to call it a drought, but now that it's gone on for 10 years, 
I think the terminology of drought is no longer appropriate. Um, we are running uh, very short of water. Um, we, as a result, uh, various things that we used to do have changed. If you live in the cities, you notice it in ways that you're not allowed to water your garden uh, unless you collect rainwater from the shower. So a lot of people shower in buckets and carry the water out to their garden, which has been great uh, for the business of physiotherapists, um, but uh, uh, is not a good way to, to really keep your, your garden going. Um, but it's also had more serious consequences for, for example, uh, we used to have a rice growing industry which relied on irrigation. There simply isn't the water really to do that. Uh, that was a contributing factor to the sharp increase in rice prices a year or so ago. Um, uh, and it's very bad, obviously, for those rural areas that depended on water uh, through the, um, the Murray-Darling irrigation system, the biggest river system in Australia, which is no longer really able to provide very much of that water. But nevertheless, Australia is an affluent country and nobody is starving because of climate change in Australia. Uh, if you can't grow rice, maybe you can shift to something else that doesn't require so much water or uh, in the worst resort, you can leave the land and go to the cities and even if you can't find a job, you'll get enough social security so that you have somewhere to live uh, and you're not going to starve and you still have health care, of course, and you still have safe drinking water. Um, if similar things happen, and they're likely to happen in sub-Saharan Africa, there's going to be no such support and backup. And uh, it's very easy to see, I think, if you look at what's happened in Australia over the last 10 years, it's very easy to see the likelihood of hundreds of millions of people becoming refugees because the rains on which they rely no longer fall where they used to fall or they become more variable uh, a whole range of possible differences. So um, I think the, the, the situation really could not be more serious. Okay, so what principle, what principle of justice should we use to allocate the capacity of the planet to um, absorb our greenhouse gases? There are a variety of possibilities and to save time I'm not going to talk about them all. Um, you could talk about uh, the historical responsibility of the developed nations um, but I'm going to simply look at the present and say, well, one principle which at least has a prima facie case for fairness would be equal per capita shares. So that's the principle that you are likely to use if you carve up the apple pie. Assume that nobody, you know, nobody made the pie. It's not as if there's somebody there who provided the flour and the apples or baked the pie. They might have a claim to more of it. But in this case, none of us, none of us provided the atmosphere. I said it's a common resource. So, subject to strong counter-arguments, equal per capita shares would seem to be a just way of producing a sustainable climate. And what you would do then is to work out the total that you think can be emitted. Um, uh, and a lot of people have talked about reducing uh, greenhouse gases to uh, by, uh, by 80% of 1990 levels to um, uh, by, by 2050. Um, uh, once you get that total, you uh, divide it by the world's population, calculate what each person's share of the total is, and then you allocate each country its greenhouse gas quota uh, multiplied by the per person share. Now, at this stage, people are going to be saying, well, that's absurd because, as I just said, the United States 
with 5% of the world's population has 25% of the emissions. So the United States would have to cut its emissions to um, uh, one-fifth of what they are today, and that's clearly impossible. No nation could do that within a you know, reasonable short sort of time period. But um, there is a mechanism to make it more possible, of course, and that is to uh, have an, a, a carbon emission trading system that would enable the rich nations to buy from the poor nations. And since it is the rich nations that emit more greenhouse gas emissions, uh, that would also have an impact on producing the more just world uh, because there would be a transfer, and I think a transfer justified independently of the argument I gave you before, from the rich nations to the poor nations um, because uh, of the fact that the rich nations are using more of this common resource and they ought to pay the poor nations for more of the common resource. The other advantage of this, of course, is that it gives the poor nations an incentive to keep their emissions low so that they continue to have something that they can trade, namely the uh, climate change emissions. Now, there are some problems about this transfer. I agree. There are problems about transferring money to corrupt governments. Um, there are problems that are related to the resource curse uh, issue, which uh, some of you will be familiar with, that happens when oil-rich, say, or mineral-rich nations get a lot of wealth from sending uh, their minerals overseas. So uh, for some governments, I would suggest, rather than it be transferred to a government that's not going to use it for the benefit of the people, we may need to establish trust funds to uh, see, uh, to wait until there is a government that will use it in that way. And uh, you know, there, are, there are issues there. But I think there's an in principle possible solution that uh, can be seen. Okay, one objection to this is that uh, it encourages population growth because your quota depends on the population that you have. And therefore, if your population increases, you get a larger quota. Whereas if your population falls, your quota diminishes. But there is a response to that, and that is you take projected population for some years ahead. We have UN projections for populations for all countries by 2050. And if you use that as the basis, then you actually provide an incentive for countries to keep their populations below that level. Because as long as they keep them below that level, they'll have a higher per capita allowance um, than if their population grows to or exceeds that level. Another objection might be, well, some countries need more fossil fuels. They need to burn more fossil fuels. Um, so uh, shouldn't we be taking that into account? Well, I think that that's a real problem. I can sort of sympathise with um, uh, people in cold climates, for instance, uh, that they may need to do this. But after all, if they do use more fossil fuels, they're imposing on other nations the costs of living where they're living now or living comfortably where they're living now, perhaps I should say. So um, I think in the end we can't really accept that argument. I think... Um, it has to be recognised that, that living in cold climates is a costly business. Um, and uh, maybe that will encourage people to move to climates where they can be more, uh, you live on, on lower energy. Okay, is this a, is this a feasible view? I, I, I use this quote because some people will say, well, you know, equal per capita emissions, who's really going to accept that? But it's interesting that in recent years we have had something of a movement towards this uh, even by uh, leading politicians like Angela Merkel, um, who has acknowledged that, at least in the long term, this is the right way to go. 
And uh, it's pleasing to see that because I think that does provide the basis of the just and sustainable solution. And uh, here's a, uh, a, a politician from, uh, from uh, the developing nations, uh, President Museveni of Uganda, who in some ways may not be the ideal pin-up boy for uh, um, issues about uh, justice, but um, uh, I think here he has a really interesting point. Um, uh, he's really asking whether we should not consider the continued emission of greenhouse gases at a way above per capita levels by the uh, rich nations as a kind of aggression against the developing nations, and particularly the developing nations, of course, in uh, hot climates, uh, as basically they are. Um, so, uh, as he points out, uh, global warming may help some of the nations in the, in the far north, uh, Alaska, Siberia, and so on, but it's certainly not going to be good for Africa. And again, at least since we've known what we're doing and since we've had the options to change and are not changing, can't it be seen that we are violating the rights of people in those countries? Um, aggression is a strong word. Maybe aggression implies that you're deliberately uh, harming other countries or attacking them in some way. We're not doing it uh, deliberately, but we are doing it with knowledge now of what we're doing. And that's why, as I said before, I think the libertarian case really falls, at least now, now just on the facts, even if you accept the theory, the moral theory, because libertarians can no longer say that they're not violating the rights of others. If they use fossil fuels, and they all will, and if they use them in excess of their per capita allowance, and if they're living in developed nations, they all will, um, then uh, they are violating the rights of others. At the very least, they have an obligation to become... Uh, uh, you know, more or less carbon neutral in their lifestyle. And here's uh, my final image that I want to leave you with because it does combine both of the topics that I've been talking about rather nicely. What's wrong with this picture? Well, it's a private yacht owned by Paul Allen. Paul Allen, for those who don't know, co-founded Microsoft with his high school friend Bill Gates. Um, and although he pulled out earlier than Bill Gates... Uh, he still has, I think, he's lost a bit from the last uh, check. He's now down to $10 billion, poor guy. He was up to $16 billion at one point. Um, he's not been a uh, significant uh, donor, unlike Bill Gates, to the issues of global poverty. Um, he, is, he has owned what was once, this was once the largest private yacht in the world, but there's a bit of competition for that title among some of the boys. I think Larry Ellison built, of Oracle Software built a larger one and uh, I think some Russian billionaire uh, uh, outdid them both. But anyway, never mind. This will, this will do as my image. So it costs $200 million. So one question here in relation to what I was saying before is what should we think about someone who spends $200 million on a private yacht um, uh, when there are 25,000 children starving and when $200 million could do a lot of good for those children or for various other uh, important Causes. I think we ought to be developing a culture that really says this is something that is disgraceful, to spend that much money on yourself, on your private pleasures and those of a few family and friends is in itself a disgrace. But this also uh, bridges the other issue that I want to talk about because, of course, this is not a yacht in the sense of something that you pull up the sails and sail around with the renewable energy of the wind, this thing has four large uh, engines in it. And I happened to find somebody who would give me the, the data 
on the fuel consumption of these engines. In one hour at full power, this yacht will use as much fuel as you could drive your Volkswagen Jetta, if you have one of those uh, diesel cars, for 269,000 kilometres in one hour. So, again, we ought to really be saying no individual person has, can justify a carbon footprint, anything like that. Thank you very much. for that and uh, we now have uh, about uh, half an hour for uh, questions and answers so can I just ask you three things one is um, that you wait for the roving microphone because it, that way everyone can hear your question uh, second is just say who you are and thirdly keep your questions uh, short and to the point because I think there will be a lot of people who want to get in with questions uh, so who would like to start yes over there. Hello, um, my name is Jess Blakers. Um, thank you for that uh, very interesting lecture. Um, I just wanted to ask you, because you're saying very much from a point of view of individual duty, but what duties do we have as citizens um, in advocacy to our governments? And I'm thinking about um, debt repayment, because obviously all the money that's going now to Africa is basically coming back to developed countries through the repayment of debt. So how does that work in your... In Sorry. Yeah, okay. Um, well, thanks for your question. Uh, so I think as citizens we have obligations to uh, try to make our country a contributor to a just and sustainable world. Um, in terms of the aid issue... I think we should be citizens who are aware of what our government is doing in regard to aid, um, should be contacting our elected representatives and saying, are you supporting an increase in aid? Are you supporting making sure our aid is as effective as possible? And there's various things we can do there. Um, you know, if I were talking in the United States, I could give a long talk about the ways in which the United States aid is politically tilted and uh, a lot of it is tied to United States goods and services which makes it less effective. British aid is better by, by those standards. Um, not perfect perhaps but, but significantly better. Um, so, but I think you know you sh those are questions. At least we, we could people in Britain could say can't Britain do as well as Sweden or Norway for instance. Um, so far as debt is concerned well there's been a strong movement for debt relief and it has made some progress. Uh, there could perhaps be more made, but um, what you said about the money flowing back, I mean, I'm not talking about giving money as such, certainly not talking about giving money to governments. Um, I'm talking about a variety of aid programs that lead to sustainable development. So that's not going to flow back. There's going to be nothing to flow back from the fact that you've provided healthcare clinics or you've provided farmers with better seeds that can produce um, uh, more uh, richer crops for them and so on. Um, but it may, of course, make it more possible for some countries to pay debt back if uh, they become more prosperous and have more earnings. So I, I think there's a variety of things we could do. But what I want to emphasize, I guess, is that I've talked about our individual responsibilities, as you said, because I think too often the idea that, well, the government should be doing more functions as an excuse for us not doing anything. And while I think we should be responsible citizens and citizen advocates, um, we shouldn't use that as an excuse for 
not taking the power we have ourselves. Okay, so um, sort of about uh, five, five lines, five rows up here. It's all very well t talking about individual responsibilities and we, we need encouragement to do that and you've done that very well. But we should focus a lot more on rich and powerful people and although you've finished your lecture with comments about just one rich and powerful man, we need to spend a lot more time on these people because they are the people who should be giving moral leadership and they are not doing that. And we need, we need to shame and we need to na name and shame these people or else they should either give leadership or they should resign. And, and, and when they give leadership, then a lot of people lower down the social hierarchy will start thinking in more green ways because they want to be promoted in their careers. Thank you. Yes, well, I, I, I do tend to agree with that. I mean, of course, there are some who have given leadership, at least on the global poverty issue. Bill Gates is obviously one, and, and Warren Buffett has, has joined. Um, and, but I do agree with you that, uh, you know, and that's in a way what I was doing with talking about Paul Allen, um, uh, that um, I think, I think uh, shame is appropriate here. And that's, I think, a public standard that we need to develop. And, uh, of course, we, we wouldn't just end up with one or two. We would try to develop a standard that we would feel people ought to meet and that certain kinds of at least extreme ostentatious spending and, and extreme... Uh, carbon emitting uh, lifestyles would become something that was just not acceptable if you wanted to be thought of as a decent figure in society. Uh, what about giving in kind? And I mean by that in time and skills. Médecins Sans Frontières, Cuba sending its doctors to Angola and Venezuela. Chelsea and Westminster HIV consultants going out three or four times a year to train doctors um, in Vietnam and Botswana. And that can be applied to numerous other professions and trades. Shouldn't we be encouraging people at the time as students, I mean that goes back to Kennedy I know, maybe in midlife with sabbaticals and certainly after they're retired, to take their talents and skills to the developing emerging world? Wouldn't that lead to greater awareness and greater integration uh, much more than just giving money. Well, it, it, it certainly would if you have the skills that will be useful. I mean, I think your examples were medical skills. Um, and uh, yes. Um, well, okay, I, th I think you need to ask what are needed, and, and, and they will vary, certainly. I mean, uh, if you have qualifications in medicine or relevant qualifications in engineering, um, education, uh, yes, to some extent. Um, you may have, uh, if, you're, if you're a teacher, it will depend on, you know, you need to teach the curriculum that, that is there. Uh, but I think there are a lot of opportunities. But on the other hand, just arriving in a developing country and saying, I'm here to help, um, is not going to be useful. Yeah, you, exactly. You, you, you need to have a structured program that people can participate in. And that's going to cost something too. I mean, so that's why, as you say, uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders may do something like that. But we need to give them money as well so that they can set up the structure. I do talk in the book about a couple of organizations that use the services of doctors in uh, one case to restore sight in people who are blind, in another case to repair obstetric fistulas in young women who've had this 
dreadful uh, injury during birth, which can be can ruin the, their entire life, um, but can be relatively easily repaired by a doctor with the equipment and surgery, and uh, roughly at a cost of $450, which is another example of how far money can go, especially if you do have volunteers as well who are providing the surgical skills. Thank you. Um, what is the balance of your argument between individual and social giving, e.g. taxation, between, let's say, charity and taxation, and where is the responsibility to be borne for realizing, as it were, these arguments? And in light of your view of that, what is your assessment of the pros and cons of, let's say, a system of international taxation, which might be a net transfer system that might operate potentially more effectively than voluntary contributions by themselves? Well, I don't have um, a fixed formula, um, but I do think that uh, if your government is doing a lot, then to some extent maybe you're off the hook in terms of the scale that I've got. So um, I'm, uh, on Friday I'm going from here to Sweden where the book is also being published. Uh, and uh, certainly I'm aware that, that they are giving significantly more. Um, so there's a, there's a big difference between speaking about this in, in Sweden and speaking about it in the United States. And speaking about it here maybe is, is somewhere in between the two. Uh, I think that um, uh, still, you know, even one could give more than the Swedes are giving, more 1%, because um, my scale will end up being more because the rich will end up giving more. So I still think there's, there's some responsibility to do more than that. In terms of an international tax uh, system, uh, as has been suggested, uh, if that would really work, that would be great. Um, I think we're some way off from having that either something that the rich nations are prepared to accept or, or knowing the details of really how that would work to make sure that it did work effectively because obviously there are going to be corruption issues if what you're doing is transferring resources to all of the developing countries in the world. You have to have some uh, arrangement in place, more or less as I suggested, with the money paid for uh, carbon emissions trading to make sure that this is really going to benefit the people of developing countries um, and not only the governments. Yeah, I'll take some on this side here. Hi there. Um, sorry. Uh, yeah, your first premise on your argument that you put up originally um, was something to the effect of uh, if we can prevent um, something bad, like poverty was your example, from happening uh, without sacrificing something less important, uh, we ought to do so. Uh, I mean, how far does this kind of pervade? Because, I mean, it could kind of infiltrate into every aspect of our lives almost, like uh, you're drinking bottled water, for example. You could have got that from the tap, saved a little bit of money. That could have helped something. It's a, it's a sacrifice that is less important than that money going to a more needy cause, perhaps. Um, you're wearing a jacket, a T-shirt. You could just wear a jumper. That would be fine. <laughs> There's, I mean, I, I, su I suppose what I'm asking is how far should this premise pervade into our lives? And kind of associated to that is a question sort of, what level of affluence is acceptable to uh, be able to extrapolate it onto the global population so that everyone can live at that same level? And do you live above this line or below it? Right. Okay. Um, no, these, these, these are good points. Um, and 
For the bottled water, all I can say is that was what was provided here, right? <laughs> I would be very happy to accept tap water, um, and I don't uh, buy bottled water for myself when, when tap water is available, as it usually is. Uh, so I think that um, we should be living uh, reasonably modestly, but I don't claim to live as modestly as that would imply. I mean, this is the, the strong, the highly demanding version of the, the principle, and, and you're right that I, I do think personally, that we ought to go further than the realistic standard that I put up in one of the slides and that's, that's on the website. Um, but I recognise that perhaps I'm just not a saintly enough person to go all the way with that. And perhaps it's that recognition that's led me to say, well, if I'm like this, I'm sure most people are not going to be that much you know, closer to it than I am. So we do need a standard to encourage people to feel that they are able to do something which will at least in, in, in some way satisfy some sort of requirement that they're contributing to the solution of the problem. Uh, and uh, uh, so I think we really, really you know, you, you can hold me to a higher standard if you like and you can blame me because I'm the one who's talking about it. But I think in general we should rather say to people, are you meeting this standard um, which would produce more than enough if only everyone were to meet it? And uh, if people are meeting that standard, I think we should say, okay, good, and move on to look at those people who are not meeting the standard. Okay, um, yeah, I was wondering why you always talk about the percentage level to give rather than the absolute level to give. Because we understand you're a consequentialist, right? Mm -hmm. So if Paul Allen gives 1% of his income, that saves you know, 1,000, 2,000 people's lives. If I give 1%, that saves one person. So, but all your obligations you put on is just relative to your income, rather than, but with, as a consequence, what really matters is how much money is actually transferred rather than percentage level. And it's, you know, in your book, which I actually have read, um, but I think it only talks about in terms of giving and percentage, where this, in, in a way, seems to be irrelevant from a consequential point of view, because what matters is the absolute number that goes down. Uh, down in the sense of going to developing countries. Now, to, to some more the related point is like if somebody wonders though, what kind of life they should live, you think, okay, should I either be like a beach bum and give like 20% of my income, which is going to be like a thousand pounds per month to charity, or should it be like a hardworking corporate lawyer and make two million pounds a month, uh, a year, well, I don't know, something like this, and um, give a lower percentage and those claim more for myself. So just those two questions, like why do you always talk about percentages run in absolute terms? And second question is what kind of life, like should, uh, should somebody lead, um, like should you basically take into account your income potential? Yeah, I, I think I've got the point, yeah. Okay, so uh, why percentage rather than absolute amount? Because that, I think, gives you some sense of the extent to which you're, you're giving up something. Um, obviously, if I were to name an absolute amount and say everyone should give a thousand pounds, that's quite a lot for somebody who's only earning, say, 15,000 um, pounds, but it's almost nothing for somebody who's earning a lot. In fact, it's not even a percentage if you look at the scale in detail. It's like tax scales. It's, it's a progressively increasing amount. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to calculate percentages which will yield a sum. So I'm still interested in the total sum, and that's why, as I said, it calculated out at one and a half trillion dollars if 
everyone in the world would give according to this scale, um, because that's what I'm interested in. But I'm interested in proposing a standard which will be roughly, you know, comparably demanding for people at, at all levels. Um, your, other, your second question is, is a good one that uh, some of my Princeton students sometimes ask me, and it also relates to the question the gentleman asked earlier about volunteering my services, or not exactly volunteering, but some, some of my students say, well, look, what do you think I should do when I graduate? I could go into an NGO where I'm working directly for one of these causes, um, wouldn't earn very much money, but would be doing something useful for the cause. However, I also have the opportunity to get a job with an investment bank. Probably this is not this year to do it, but, um, <laughs> but they've certainly said this in past years. And I'll get paid a six-figure salary as soon as I graduate, and in a few years it'll be a seven-figure salary, and then I'll have a lot to give. Um, so my worry about that is, you know, I can see the point that um, that, that is a better thing to do if they really are going to maintain their commitment to give. And I guess we have to assume that there's nothing actually pernicious that they're doing in their work as, uh, with the investment bank. But, um, but if we can assume that. Um, uh, the problem, of course, is that if they start working for an investment bank, soon what they see as their needs are going to expand. So they're not going to have that much left over to give after all. If you read like Tom Wolfe's book, Bonfire of the Vanities, it's a wonderful portrayal of how your needs develop into having this, you know, six-bedroom apartment on Park Avenue and so on if you live in a certain milieu. So that's the danger. But, but if people could avoid that and say, yeah, I'm really going to live very simply, just still have to wear a jacket because otherwise I can't earn my dollars at the investment bank, they expect that. But um, beyond that, I'll give almost everything away. If you could really do that, that could be a good life choice. Yes, I, I haven't read your book, so I don't know whether you've addressed that question any further, but I thought there was actually much more, there has been much more criticism of the efficacy of aid uh, than what you uh, mentioned, both of official aid, which some people argue have only, has really mainly uh, supported corrupted regimes, uh, non-democratic regimes, etc., etc. Um, so do we really want our governments to give more? And, even, and also of NGO aid, which again some people, including in many African countries, believe has been supporting the NGOs, the, uh, the, 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 the elites, uh, the, the people who are spending that money, up to 30%, I think, on their own, uh, supporting their own living. Uh, now, in this, if this is the case, uh, I'm not sure to what extent your first premise is applicable, that we ought to be morally, that if we are morally obliged to help others who have lost, got, get lost, have got less than us, how therefore we should give more money to those NGOs. Should, shouldn't we first make sure that those NGOs actually are spending our money productively? Yes, certainly we should make sure that we give only to effective NGOs that are spending our money productively. And I have quite a bit in the book about that. Um, so, you know, whether that, that, there is a lot of criticism about aid. As I've said, most of it is focused on, on government and World Bank aid. I agree that in terms of getting governments to increase their aid, we also wanted to make it more effective. Um, with NGOs, though, of course, we can make the choice, and that's what we need to do, and that's why I've talked about um, uh, in the book about this uh, website, givewell.net, that um, tries to check out how, much, how effective aid organisations are, how much it is going to take to save a life. Um, and uh, you know, I think we, we have a responsibility to do some research on that. I'll just say one more thing, though, about what you said. 
Um, you said, well, maybe 30% of the money you give goes to support the people who are working for the organization and their lifestyles. Look, um, you know, I, w I would accept that, really. I mean, the difference between what I can do with a pan, for example, buying this rather than drinking water that comes out of the tap, and what someone in the developing world can do with 70 pence um, still seems to me to be very much tilted in favor of greater benefits from the 70 pence than I get from the pan. So if it's that sort of ratio, I would accept it. I mean, if, it's, uh, if, if somehow 90% of it is scooped off, I wouldn't accept it. But I don't believe that there's any of the, the organisations that you're likely to be giving to, the Oxfam's or the Christian Aid or the Doctors Without Borders or Action International, whatever it is, uh, I don't think they're anything like that. Um, you know, I think they're probably more in the 20 cents range, 20% uh, 20, 20 but maybe 30 um, when you talked about giving to the global poor, you seem to say that we have a positive duty to give to the poor. Now, some people, such as um, Pogger and Kaney, have argued that that's a bit weak, and we actually have stronger negative duties to give. Um, other than political prudence and efficacy in the public perception realm, are there any theoretical reasons why you would say we don't have a, a negative duty to justice, only a positive duty? Um, I don't say that we don't have a negative duty. I simply don't say that we do have a negative duty. Um, in other words, uh, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm, actually I think that at least some of Poggy's arguments are quite convincing. I, I mentioned the resource curse, and that's something that he talks about. Um, I, and I do talk about that in the book uh, a bit. I think the argument that we dam we've damaged nations, um, that in fact we're really in receipt of stolen goods, uh, is... Uh, uh, a worthwhile argument to make and one that suggests that we have harmed them and owe them something for that. The climate change argument that I made could also be seen as saying that we have a, uh, uh, a, a duty, uh, a negative duty to stop harming them or to compensate them for the harm we've caused. But the broader argument that says uh, the whole global economic order is one that harms them, uh, which many people make and which I think is part of Poggi's argument, perhaps the broader part, um, I think is actually, you know, although there's a, there's a weaker moral premise, if you like, that we've just got to stop harming them, and that's easier to argue for than that we ought to positively aid them, there's, a, there's a, a higher, more difficult factual premise to justify. That is that the global economic order does harm the poor nations. Um, I've written about that a little bit some years ago in a book called One World, and uh, I don't think it's really clear-cut that it does. I think that it's a much more mixed picture, that the global economic order has helped uh, hundreds of millions of people get out of poverty, um, but it perhaps has left other hundreds of millions in poverty, um, certainly not helped them, maybe even, maybe even harmed them. But you've still got to weigh up the, uh, the pros and cons, and I don't think the, the underlying picture is really a, a very clear one. Up by the, the wall there. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you know that the government here a few years ago had a, a campaign to try to get people to give more to charity called the Giving Campaign, but I had the, the pleasure of working for it, and it's a very complicated thing trying to get people to give more. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But my question was um, more to do with, I think there's a missing fact, and I'd, I'd love to hear your answer to it, which is uh, not being uh, brought into your arguments either on the global warming or the uh, absolute poverty discussion, which is to do with uh, the increase in the global population. Um, 
because it does come into your per capita model. It does come into all sorts of other things. And almost to dramatize it, you know, if I saw that child drowning and decided to jump in, I would definitely do it. But if it happened every week because more children came along, I'd have to think about it twice. and say, where are these kids coming from? So I just wonder what your in, uh, thoughts are on the ethics of the, uh, uh, you know, controlling global population and things like that. Yeah, um, I think that, that this is clearly... Um, at least in some countries, a, a cause of poverty and will get worse unless uh, population growth slows quite dramatically in, in, in a number of countries. I mean, uh, Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of Congo would be examples of countries that are already poor and have quite steep rates of population growth. The question is uh, what we should be doing about it. Um, and some of the things that I think we should be doing to reduce global poverty anyway are things that can be expected to have that effect. In particular, providing education for girls has been shown to correlate with lower fertility. So um, that's something which is good in terms of reducing poverty. It helps to empower women. Um, they're likely to be, therefore, uh, better able to find income and work uh, and so on. Uh, so I think that's a good part of it. Um, some of the organizations uh, that I talk about in the book are also working uh, for uh, reducing population growth. Uh, one of the organizations that the uh, guys at GiveWell recommend is Population Services International, which saves lives by distributing condoms in HIV uh, infection areas. Um, but of course, uh, the condoms also uh, reduce fertility. And uh, if you know, if, if you're someone who thinks that this is really the key thing that we ought to be working on, then I would say, sure, take the whole argument that I made in terms of our responsibility to help and our responsibility to give and direct it to Population Services International or International Planned Parenthood Federation or whichever of those organisations working for that you think is most effective because that will then, if those assumptions are right, in the long run be the best way of reducing world poverty. You've been incredibly uh, um, disciplined in your questions, so a lot of people have had a chance to ask a question. I'm just going to allow one more, which is just the middle, middle of the middle row, right? Um, so if you just wait for the... That's you, yeah. yeah. Actually, I think you asked the To, uh, to individually um, reduce their carbon footprint because they don't see the connection as strongly as if they gave money to actually help poverty. So I think, I think you mentioned that. So. Okay, thank you. Okay, well, can I just uh, thank Peter Singer again and also thank you for your questions. Thank you.